Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. Happy Monday, although, and I'm joined by uh, former professor uh, Tom Nichols. Tom Nichols started off before we started saying, Charlie, you just sucked out all my my will to live this morning with my with my morning shots, and I apologize for that. <laughs> It, it, it wasn't. It was a real Monday jolt, Charlie. Okay, but but well, here's here's the thing. I I had to write something about Ron Johnson running for re-election, and no, that people outside Wisconsin probably think, "Hey, dead man walking." I mean, he's too crazy, right? It's Wisconsin. Uh, he's been trending, you know, trending more Democratic. And I said, "No, you know what? He can win. He he might win. Actually, I think he's the favorite to win for a number of reasons." including the fact that it's not going to be a great year for Democrats and Democrats um, might just blow this. And then part of it's a warning shot. And Kim, you do this too. Warning shot to Democrats. You nominate a squad adjacent candidate in Wisconsin in 2022, and you can pretty much count on six more years of Ron John. So part of it is like, hey, you know, this is constructive warning, not not, not designed to get you to take all the ambient Mr. Nichols, <laughs> my ambient, my ambient smoothie for breakfast. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I feel like I spend, like all of us, you know, in this new coalition, um, spend a lot of time pleading with Democrats not to lose winnable elections. Not, not, not about the elections where, <clears throat> you know, I don't really care what happens in a D plus fifty five seat. That's not, that's not my lookout. Or, or, you know, really whether or not uh, Amy McGrath will ever unseat Mitch McConnell, because she won't. But in these winnable races, I feel like we're just constantly saying, you know, don't do this. And, um, you know, Democrats are always saying, no, no, we've got this. We we understand this now. And, of course, they, they don't. And um, we all suffer for it if that's going to be the, the case. So... I was depressed because you were right, Charlie. No, no. Okay. So the Amy Bogart thing is is sort of in my in my mind that what's happening now is is as all politics becomes uh, nationalized, is that there's that national um, folks, Democrats, fall in love with somebody in say you know southeastern Wisconsin or in Kentucky, and they dump tens of millions of dollars into completely unwinnable races. And it's like people on the ground will go, no, 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 this isn't going to work. And yet they do it anyway. And I think they're going to do it in Wisconsin. People can read my my morning shots. I Look, um, Democrats have they're a ton of- keep doing it. Yeah, they, well, you know, the lieutenant governor of Wisconsin is named Mandela Barnes. And he's a big, big, big fan of Elon Omar, um, Bernie Sanders. He's kind of out there. He's not very experienced in politics. He's never actually won a statewide general election on his own. Our lieutenant governor's run as a ticket. Uh, and yet, there's a good chance that he will uh, win that primary. And I think that's one of the reasons why Ron Johnson ran. He figures, right. look, it's, it's a bad year for Democrats. And the Democrats are about to nominate somebody way to the left of uh you know the, the the center of the electorate in wisconsin and don't give me the tammy baldwin stuff because tammy baldwin's a really good politician and she doesn't have nearly the baggage of the barn test but that's why i wrote it i i think a lot of us would you know because again when we do when we start talking this way we get a um we get that you know pipe down former conservatives we would if we thought that democrats would turn out in in the and especially in off-year elections the way republicans do you know, it's not just nominating someone who might not be able to win and is unlikely to win. It's nominating that guy or gal or where, you know, in whatever race it is, and then not showing up. Um, the Over the weekend, uh, there was an Ezra Klein piece about the right, state yeah. and local elections. Very interesting piece. It, but, and nothing you and I haven't said a hundred times, Charlie, about state and local elections where in the piece, a Democratic um, a committee person is saying we get 20% turnout for these races. And, you know, Republicans keep showing up and saying, great, we'll control the board of elections. We'll control, you know, we'll control the animal control officer. We'll control the state reps. Um, you know, we will create an entirely Republican uh, city, local and state milieu that makes it okay to keep electing Republicans. And Democrats just, they're like, but we won the White House twice. Well, good for you, but that doesn't, that doesn't help you win seats in Wisconsin. Yeah. Well, okay. We'll, we'll come back to this in a moment because you have a piece, your, your latest newsletter for the Atlantic, uh, to, you know, makes the case for the grand coalition, which 
again, we need to make that case over and over and over again. And it's proven to be pretty difficult to get all these sides to put aside their differences. But I have a couple of sound bites wanted to get started with uh, on, on, sure. on, a, on a Monday morning. Sort of interesting development. We're kind of moving on from Ted Cruz's, you know, abject self-humiliation, <laughs> which was truly, you know, something for the ages. Uh, but somebody I don't really know much about, um, Mike Rounds, Republican senator from South Dakota, solidly conservative, voted with Trump, right? I mean, not not a Susan Collins type Republican, right? Not not a not not a Liz Cheney type Republican. Uh, Mike Mike Rounds um, goes on George Stephanopoulos, and well, he says this about the election. Let's split. As a part of our due diligence, we looked at over sixty different accusations made in multiple states. While there were some irregularities, there were none of the irregularities which would have risen to the point where they would have changed the vote outcome in a single state. The election was fair, as fair as we've seen. Uh, we simply did not win the election as Republicans for the presidency. Whoa. Okay, so wow. um, predictably, like clockwork, uh, the former guy puts out a statement today because no one can be allowed to ever dissent, right? So the former president puts out a statement accusing Mike Rounds of South Dakota uh, of going woke on the fraudulent presidential election of 2020. I mean, he goes all, you know, talks about, you know, the radical left Democrats and rhinos like Senator Mike Rounds. And he says, is, is he crazy or just stupid? The numbers are conclusive and the fraudulent and irregular votes are massive. Okay, so uh, this is, you this know, is keep, the word. Go on. <laughs> people, keep, people keep trying to compare, you know, Trump to Hitler. <clears throat> but as a former Soviet guy, I have to tell you, this is Stalinist. This is, you know, um, this comrade has now engaged in right deviationism and must be brought back into the general line of the party. Uh, you know, it's because there is this, um, they're not fighting over party discipline. They're fighting over loyalty to the leader and over reality itself. All Mike Brown said was, um, I am not crazy. Think of it. everything that Mike Brown said right. just boiled down to, I am not insane. And Trump's response to that is, uh, insanity is the price of admission to this party. That, well, that's right. And, and if that was not clear before, which it was clear, I mean, obviously it was clear, but now it's like we're going to enforce any against any of you heretics. As now you say it's Stalinist. It feels a little bit like Groucho Marxism. A part of it is, is, I mean, and I, this is the, this is the problem is that I, it's, it is ridiculous. It is a clown car, which can lead some people to underestimate the threat. So it, it is both ludicrous, but also menacing. And I, I think those are the, there's, they're slightly in, in tension with one another, but I mean, his point is, you know, to send a shot, any of you out there, no matter who you are, no matter how you voted, no matter what your politics are, if any of you dissent, I'm going to shoot at you, which then explains why so many Republicans have just made the prudential decision to keep your head down. Don't say anything. It is. He knows when he says these things that he's turning a mob on people. Yeah. I mean, that's that, the point. that much. I mean, that's that's really the the threatening part of it is that when he or, you know, the party ideologists over at Fox News identify someone uh, you know, you can bet that Mike Rounds' phones are lighting up with "Why did you join the conspiracy?" You know, what do you when what did, do you want to destroy our nation? Why do you want rhinos to destroy like why are Rounds you? that are allowing the Democrats to destroy our nation? Why did you decide to become a traitor? Um, you know, and it will all and then you can bet. I mean, I would I'd put down uh, twenty bucks here. That's that Rounds has already had some fairly threatening emails and phone calls because this this cult and that's the other thing we've we've gone from hitler to stalin to let's call it what it is it's a cult this cult does not take uh does not brook any opposition and opposition is simply math um you know two and this is you know two and two isn't four kill the heretic and so, yeah. you know, I, I mean, you can see little glimmers of Republicans saying, listen, I'm on board with the project. I'm on board with all the policies we want to get. I'm on board with even dealing with Donald Trump. What I can't be on board with is, um, you know, reversing basic mathematics.
which would seem to be a reasonable thing. Uh, now, of course, Rounds was just reelected and he's not up for another six years. So but but even so, Trump is saying, even though his election will not be coming up for five years, I will never endorse this jerk again. <laughs> well, OK, you know, but there are other people check who back in been... six years after you know half a decade. <laughs> right. Um, you know, th this is when, you know, you, you realize the founders were onto something with those long terms. Um, but, but there's also, you know, there've been a lot of other people who are recently elected and they've been awfully quiet. I, I don't, you know, think we need to name all of them Ben Sass, but, um, you know, there are plenty of them and they haven't spoken up. So I guess, you know, if not three cheers, one cheer for Mike Rounds for standing up for, you know, living uh, in a reality-based planet for 20 minutes. Okay, so how, how about a, a cheer and a half for uh, also the outgoing governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, who also was uh, was on yesterday morning and had this to say about January 6th as a Republican governor. We're going to have a good 2022. I'm excited about the elections. Uh, but at the same time, if we want to be a party of strength over the long term, then we've got to not diminish and minimize the consequences of January 6th. And this last week was a time of reflection on that. And over the coming years, it's going to get worse, not better. And so we have to, one, make sure we show that that was unacceptable. Uh, we have to define it in the right way. It was an attempt uh, to stop the peaceful transfer of power. And thirdly, we have to mm -hmm. make sure we uh, are clear mm -hmm. that uh, President Trump did have some responsibility mm -hmm. for that. Okay, so I don't know. As of this taping, we haven't gotten a statement out of Mar-a-Lago, but that's coming too. Uh, thoughts about uh, Asa Hutchinson coming out and making those points yesterday? Uh, two thoughts. One is, as you pointed out, outgoing governor. Yep. You know, there's a lot of uh, folks who, now that they can kind of get away from the blast zone of the of the Trumpist craziness, uh, can speak some of the truth. In fact. Um, I don't know if you saw there was a Politico piece a week ago where someone basically said off the record, yeah, we're not criticizing Trump because we're all, you know, uh, cowardly careerists and we don't, none of us want to blow our shot at working in a White House again. Um, but, you know, when they're outgoing, they can say, okay, I don't have anything more to lose. So I can speak the truth. But the second thing I would say about that is even that statement got piled on by some people from the left who said, oh, some responsibility. He's the governor of Arkansas. By the standards of the governorship of Arkansas, this was practically full-throated opposition. Take it and be happy with it. And, you know, I, I hesitate to bring this up because it will wind me up, but I am not a fan of Dick Cheney. I haven't been a fan of Dick Cheney mm. for a long time. But uh, for there has been this pile-on of people saying, how could Democrats shake his hand, you know, for showing up to the 1-6, blah, blah, blah. You know what? If even Dick Cheney, that's how, I think that's how every statement about Cheney should begin right now. Even Dick Cheney um, can come out and say the Republican Party is no longer a party that supports the Constitution. Um, then, you know, take it and take it as a win and add that as more evidence that you need a very broad coalition to remind a lot of people that the Republican Party has become an authoritarian menace. And instead, there's been, you know, like with Hutchinson, I haven't seen anybody going after rounds yet, but that that I'm sure that oh, will come. Yeah. Oh, um, oh on the left, people, of course, yeah. yeah. On the left, um, there are people on the left going after Rachel Walensky, of all people. This is, uh, this this whole notion that somehow we should all row in the same direction just, you know, we're going to end up rowing in circles uh, because people can't take yes for an answer. I was pretty shocked to see the governor of Arkansas, you know, not not a not by no one's definition, a weak sister in all this um, coming out and saying, yeah, President Trump bears some responsibility here. OK, he used the word some big deal ever. The, the message was loud and clear. And in Arkansas, saying that at all is a really big deal. Well, you know, I I, I, uh, I wrote a piece uh, calling out uh, Democrat super lawyer Mark Elias uh, a few weeks ago for his uh, his obsession with attacking Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney. He, he doesn't tweet about the other Republicans, but he wants to make it clear, you know, no one should uh, admire Liz Cheney. Nobody should admire Adam Kinzinger because, you know, they're still Republicans and they don't support my other pieces of legislation. You know, and I, 
I, I guess this was another one of those examples where there are people who just really don't want a coalition. Um, Mark Elias is pro-democracy, but really he's pro, he's, he's a partisan. I mean, he's a partisan operative who um, is not interested in actually making a coalition. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think if he's, you know, but and to look at it from the other side of it, um, as you know, I've kind of given up talking about policy. And if Mark Elias is filing lawsuits that are getting results, mm-hmm. um, well, great. But, you know, I've and, and good, good for him. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time thinking about whether he's criticizing Adam Kinzinger. Yeah, yeah. But I've gotten that very same thing where people have said that. And my answer is, if Democrats could get their act together, um, Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney wouldn't matter that much. Um, you know, they, because there's an underlying notion here of but for these two Republicans, we could pass all these things. And yeah, that's simply not, not the, the case. case. So, you know, speaking of grand coalitions and the reaction to Dick Cheney, as as reluctant as I am to bring Hitler back into the conversation, I keep thinking of Winston (laughs) Churchill's comment. If Hitler invaded hell, I would make at least a favorable reference to the devil in the House of Commons. Right. (laughs) So, okay, this is this, by the way, is was your point. Your all hands on deck newsletter that went out up your your newsletter is called Peace Field, making a the case for. Why, if in fact we think this is a problem, we ought to have this grand coalition. So you had some comments for each political tribe. What is your message to liberals slash progressives? Well, the, I really my message to both sides on this was almost the same, which is get over it. My message to liberals said, yes, I get it. Your new coalition partners are people that have handed you some painful defeats and they've gloated about it. Um, You justifiably hold people like Charlie Sykes and Rick Wilson and Tom Nichols and, you know, Adam Kinzinger, you know, Mm -hmm. sure. You know, we were on the other side and we were not particularly keen to, to look around the bus we were on. And, and, uh, you know, you get to be right about this, that a lot of these people were racists and kooks and pretty nasty folks. Fine. Get over that. You know, we have baggage. (laughs) But as I said to them, so do you one day. And, and I really will write this piece one day. Because the Democrats, their answer is always, well, we didn't do anything to bring this situation on ourselves, to which my answer is, since the 1970s, of course you have. Of course you did. And one day, and and I put this in the piece, and I said, one day we can have a big fight about that. But today is not that day. Mm -hmm. Today, we're all rowing in the same direction. The only thing that should matter to us now is who's on the side of the Constitution and who isn't. And, and we on the right, we can teach you a few things about state and the importance of state and local offices, about throwing some hard punches. You know, when I was a kid, excuse me, when I was a kid growing up in Massachusetts, the Democrats were brawlers. I mean, my people are Irish and, you know, the Irish Democrats of Massachusetts, they played some, they played hardball. Um, That's not the Democratic Party today. And I think um, for LA Confidential fans, I said in the piece, you guys need to be a little more Bud White than Ed Exley, and we well, can, you know, we can help you to do that. I, I was thinking about that when I when I, when I read that. I was I was thinking about one of the extraordinary things about Joe Biden's speech on January sixth, which was I thought was a pretty good speech. Do you think it was a good speech? Yes, I like. I, I, I thought it was very very strong. But I think what was also extraordinary was the reaction that wow, we've never heard him talk like this before. It's like wait. This is what he should have been saying yeah. consistently. And it did remind us that that somehow either we had talked ourselves or the Democrats had talked themselves or the Biden White House had talked itself into thinking that that, no, you know, we were going to be a normal, you know, kumbaya presidency. And we didn't need to point out the, you know, the outrageous things that were going on. And so, yes, it was a wonderful speech, but it was unfortunately an outlier now maybe 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 the reaction was such that it wet their appetite and realized hey we can do this and maybe we ought to do this look at the retconning that went on at harry reed's funeral when when nancy pelosi said oh harry reed never said anything bad about about anybody and even obama even obama (laughs) kind of looked over and went uh you know nancy (laughs) uh you might want to think i mean part of the reason republicans hated harry reed 
is Harry Reid really came from the go fuck yourself school of democratic yeah. politics. Well, he's also lied about things too. Yes. Well, of course. Okay. In other words, he was a, you know, a, a dirty crotch kicking in fighter on Capitol Hill. He's the guy that went to the floor and said, you know, Mitt Romney didn't pay his taxes. Yeah, well, and you're, you're not saying we need more of that because, you know, uh, how about, a, how about a little closer to that than, than what we've had? Um, no, because, yes. well, how, how about a little bit more of the of the speech that Joe Biden gave on Thursday, which is basically calling out Trump and and, and his enablers for what they are, which, by the way, between is Harry not Reed. It, it may it may feel like a crotch kick, but, you know, it's a it, it's <laughs> actually a completely legal blow because it's true. Well, somewhere between Harry Reid and Joe Biden. And I think the answer there, the name I always come back to is Tip O'Neill. OK. Um, but something tougher than this and, and, you know, some of it's going, I mean, I, yeah, I don't want Democrats to, See, to I think go this to the floor been, and lie about people, yeah. but I do want them to say, uh, no, you know, this is, uh, this is, this is a real fight and it takes, it takes real, a real brawler to get into it. Well, also, I, I think the other, just the focus is they've actually been talking among themselves for most of the last year. And I think that's one of the reasons they're in trouble is that you have that even though the, the progressives uh, are the minority in the party. They they seem to think that they ought to be driving the bus, and I think there's been a reluctance to push back against them too. So so you basically you you have had this this internal debate that has led a lot of Republicans you know sitting on the sidelines going wait you know when when is the incoming fire? If you're a Republican right now, the only criticism you care about comes from Mar-a-Lago because the Democrats are too busy shooting each other to shoot yeah. at you. It's always, it's always the circular firing squad. And it's all, I think, and I, I have some advice for conservatives, but the last thing I'll say yeah, about, about liberals is, and I said, said to them, if you believe as so many of us do, that this is an existential threat to the constitutional system of the United States, then you need to start acting like it. Yeah. And that means no more of these, you know, internal uh, tugs of war over, uh, you know, is policy going to be to the left or to the far left? Um, you know, are we going to how much are we going to shit on Joe Manchin? Why? You know, that, how much are we going to That's working out so well. Because that's on really, Joe Manchin exactly, has really worked out. It's been great. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, and I, I hate to say this because it's one of those I told you so moments when we, a lot of us were warning if you want police reform, mm. the demonstrations are over, get moving, get it passed, stop fighting about it, get something through. And of course, it wasn't enough. It was too far to this. It was too far to the right. It was too pro-cop. It was too anti-cop. And police reform last fall died. And it's gone. And it's probably gone for a long time. And I think this is something where liberals and conservatives could have agreed that police reform is actually something that we could all, in a bipartisan way, agree needs to be done. And now it's not going to happen. And I think Democrats have got to get used to the idea that, look, you are the governing party. And that means you must govern. And Biden gets it. I mean, on this, I think, you know, Biden is a throwback to an earlier age of Democrats. But I think a lot of younger Democrats just haven't internalized governing means governing from a coalition that is that is closer to the center than maybe you might like. But that's how you govern and get things so, done. OK, I, I, I have. Boy, you know what? It's 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 Monday. And I so I'm a little bit reluctant, having been as negative as I was earlier, uh, to step into the middle of a shitstorm. But I, I just have a question. And, and please, before you, you dunk on me, everybody. This this is a question. I, I know that uh, Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris are down in Georgia and they're going to be pushing voting rights. Do any of the bills that are in front of the Congress right now, including the John Lewis bill, which I favor um, and other bills, do any of them actually deal with the threat that is being posed by Republicans and the Trump MAGA crowd uh, of, of a potential future coup or stealing the election? I ask because they seem to be sort of one-off topic. They're focused on access to the voting booth, which are all legitimate, but none of them actually seem to be confronting what we faced in 2020 and in, in, in 2021 and what we might face in 2024. I mean, th there's a disconnect or am I missing something? You're killing me, Smalls. Oh, okay, <laughs> um, you, you know, I don't, look, there's a, 
as as good conservatives, we also have to say there is a limit to what the federal legislation can do about how the states send people to Washington. And we wouldn't want a hyper-centralized, super-powerful piece of legislation coming out of Congress that tells people in Indiana how they can send representatives to Congress. I think um, the best thing you can do is make it so that the, the greatest number of people vote, and that should be enough. And I also think it would have been energizing for a lot of people if instead of this, you know, this this pissing match with Manchin, that the first thing that the Democrats would have done would have been to say, look, before we get to anything else, we're going to shore up the right to vote. We can't control what goes on in state legislatures, and we wouldn't want to because the Constitution doesn't allow it. But, you know, if you let, if people get to the ballot box and the ballots are counted and enough people are allowed to actually cast their vote, then a lot of what happens at the state level irons itself out. Mm-hmm. But it just isn't going to happen. Well, so okay, but- whether it does or not, Charlie, they, they, they blew it. They didn't, they didn't go there. They decided well, to fight with themselves about a whole bunch of other stuff. And now, you know, we got the infrastructure bill, but there won't be Build Back Better. There's not going to be the John Lewis Act. There's not going to be police reform. You know, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I feel like I wish Joe. I, I wish Joe Biden all the best against the two opposition parties that he has to work with at the same time. Well, I, I, I I sympathize as well, but I guess I keep coming back to this that that the real crisis of democracy we're facing is not so much in the casting of votes; it's in the counting of votes. I'm not saying it's not legitimate to make sure that the access is is there, but it's in the counting of votes that I think the real danger, and we think back, if you think back on what Trump was trying to do, he was trying to find 11,000 extra votes in Georgia, or he was trying to get state legislatures to, to intervene. And I just don't see anything that addresses that. And this goes back to, you know, you, you say that Joe Biden gets it. I'm not sure he gets uh, one other thing, which is the that with all of the discussion of the rule of law, at some point you have to have accountability in the justice system. Yes, and and I, and I think that you know as part of this this commitment to return to normalcy, he and Merrick Garland um, have just are, are not being aggressive enough in in holding people accountable. The 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 coup leaders, the the others who were responsible for it, well, and I think that in in some ways the, the best way to protect democracy may be through through the courts and through legal action as opposed to actual legislation, which is not going to be happening, if you follow me. Well, two things. Yeah, I, I do. And I, I get your point about the counting of the votes. But, you know, the counting of the votes becomes especially tricky and prone to skullduggery when it's a marginal election. Imagine if Trump had called Georgia and said, look, I need you to find 250 votes mm-hmm. oh, instead of 11,000. Yeah. And part of, I think, what voting legislation can do is to make sure that, that of course, this requires people to show up, which is always a problem, um, but to vote in such large numbers that it simply cannot be contested. And I think that that would really have an effect at those state and local levels to say, hey, we're not, this isn't Florida. We're not quibbling over 539 votes out of 16 million or whatever it was. We're, we're talking about margins that we simply, we would literally have to light entire bags of ballots on fire. Now, if the Republicans are going to do that, then they're basically, they've become, um, you know, Putin's United Russia, um, you know, North American branch. Uh, but I don't think they're going to do that. And I think there are a lot of decent people at state and local levels who would be able to resist those calls to falsify things if the numbers are significantly large enough. And the other thing I was going to say about this is that I think Biden and Garland are still operating on an old model of good faith bipartisanship. And they really believe, they say, look, we want to be clear to Republicans, you know, that if we have to arrest Steve Bannon, it will be after we've tried everything and it would be on the firmest grounds and we would never, you know, and at this you have to look around at some of these people and say, listen, these guys don't give a flying fuck 
about the law or the constitution or the perception of good faith. So the Democrats, I think, you know, the, the president and the justice department need to proceed from, we are operating in good faith. We are operating according to our, to the constitution. I told people in this piece, I wrote, if you want inspiration, print out the oath I took to the, to the constitution 30 years ago and pin it over your desk and remind yourself that that's what you're doing. But to say, but we really don't give a rat's ass what Fox or the websites or the radio talkers think about this. If we have to arrest somebody, if we have to haul some member of Congress in, I I took a, a whole raft of shit the other day for saying, I think Mo Brooks ought to be expelled from Congress. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, what on what planet do you let someone like Mo Brooks sit in Congress after he cheered on a mob that wanted to execute constitutional officers of the United States? Well, that does seem to be but, problematic. Yes. And and so, you know, well, but, you know, we have to all operate in good faith and bipartisanship. We have to operate in constitutional good faith. Well, also, I do think, and I, 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 again, I'm risking the, the shitstorm the shit here. I do think it's important not to exaggerate the issues, to focus on what is the real problem in democracy. Um, I do think that some of the, you know, some of the rhetoric uh, about uh, some of the voting laws has been over the top. I do not believe, for example, that requiring voter ID is necessarily voter suppression, particularly if, like in the state of Wisconsin, they are completely free and you know, they make them as you know accessible as possible. In fact, they think the vast majority of voters, including the vast majority of African-American voters, support voter IDs. These are not hills to die on. Well, as, I'm going to throw a flag, and, Charlie, yeah. because I, you know, I was once uh, looking at this in in isolation as a kind of uh, principle, right? Like if you talk about voter ID as a principle, I always was like where you are now shrugging my shoulders and going, what's the big deal? What I've come to realize, I think, or, or what I've come to worry about more, especially with this Republican party is that the way that innocuous policy or what a, a policy that should be an innocuous policy would be implemented by, uh, in places that Republicans control, would become worthy of some of the rhetoric that's being aimed at it. I mean, I live in Rhode Island. All I have to do is show up and give them my, you know, they look on a roll and they say, what's your address? And they go, oh, yep, there you are. And I never, I've never, I don't think I've ever shown an ID to vote, but I'm not worried about how voter ID would be implemented in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. I'm very worried about how it would be implemented in Georgia. Hmm. And I think that's a legitimate concern. Well, uh, speaking of voting, I want to get your take on this because Mona Chern in the Bulwark has a piece, you know, are the Democrats actually trying to lose the election? And she's writing about the, both the policy and the politics of this new measure in New York City that allows non-citizens to vote in municipal elections. She said it's bad policy, terrible politics, legal permanent residents. These are green card holders. Those with valid work visas, dreamers who lived in the city for at least 30 days, would be permitted to vote in local elections with council members, mayor, municipal offices. This will add 800,000, potentially 800,000 non-citizens to the voting rolls in a city with about five and a half million registered voters. They would not be eligible to vote for federal or or state offices, but this is going to be weaponized um, by Republicans everywhere in the country. And I know that we're going to get a lot of actually, Charlie, this is, you know, they do this in Denmark or this is a great policy. Trust me, if you wanted to allow the right to change the subject, this is like it's it's it is the ultimate sort of own goal. Your thoughts? Yeah, I don't I don't I don't care what they do in Denmark. Um, I don't care what the other mommies do. You know, I don't care what they do in the European Union. We don't have it. That's like saying, okay, fine. I'll tell you what, um, we'll we'll do this the way Europe does, and Canadians can vote here too. Um, yeah. We'll go import, you know, two million liberal Canadians to come in and vote. Oh, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa! Let's not talk crazy. This is, as a matter of American constitutionalism, an insult and a mockery of the notion of citizenship, which should mean something uh, other than a tax form. And even if I agreed with every bit of this as a, as a matter of local control and city governance in New York city, as you pointed out, this is insane to do this 
when democracy in America is hanging by a thread. And one of the, the great struggles between right and left is over immigration. And the Democrats have handed yes, a cudgel to, to the right to say, yes, our goal is to make sure that people who are not citizens can come in and change our politics. Yeah. I mean, you, you can, you can you know, debate this on Twitter or on the comment section or, you know, in emails to me, but the reality is, is that in places like Indiana, Wisconsin, Michigan, um, Arkansas, Wisconsin, um, hey, ha- have this like- debate. Have this debate about should non-citizens be allowed to vote? You know, is there is there a Republican in America that does not think this is a gift? And people would say, well, this is just a local issue. We shouldn't care. Look, the, if, if you haven't noticed, what happens in places like Chicago, San Francisco, and New York become the definition of what Democrats stand for everywhere else in the country. You know, it's not just the red states, Charlie, too. This is something I think is really important for Democrats to understand. You could walk around in Brookline, Massachusetts and say, isn't this a great idea? And of course, yes. Oh, absolutely. This is, um, you know, this is the future. And you could drive 60 miles away to Worcester and walk into a bar and people would think you're nuts. I mean, this, this is something that is going to be divisive not just in red states and blue states, but as a matter of class, as a matter of generations. The idea that non-citizens can cast a vote is, I think, so, you know, I've I, people always get on me about, you know, we really need, Tom, civics classes. Well, mm-hmm. I had those well, civics I, classes. Yeah. You know, people my age have had them. And if you've had civics classes and now you're walking in and saying, but, you know, the other thing you should do is let people who aren't citizens vote. Well, then why have civics classes? No, I, I, I think Mona's piece is excellent. Okay, so the other issue, uh, speaking of own goals, I see the Chicago Teachers Union a couple days ago. And you wonder why I'm depressed this morning, Charlie. Uh, well, I, I just, the Chicago Teachers Union put out a tweet that said, the push to reopen schools is rooted in sexism, racism, and misogyny. <sighs> now, the push, okay, that's, that was their tweet. The Teachers Union has staged this I think probably illegal walkout. They have shut down the schools. The mayor of Chicago is Lori Lightfoot, African-American woman who is pushing them saying, no, we got, we have to reopen the schools. We have to come back to the schools. This has been terrible for education. It's been terrible for kids. And the teachers union is defying her. And, and that tweet was interesting because, you know, the push to reopen schools is rooted in sexism, racism, and misogyny, because we definitely associate sexism, racism, and misogyny with Lori Lightfoot. I mean, this, again, is the circular firing squad. This is not right versus left, Republicans versus Democrats. This is a major constituency of the Democratic Party that is just like, you know, manufacturing a bomb in the heart of the midterm. Because I am sorry, reopening schools is going to be a huge issue, particularly in suburban areas where I think a lot of voters are going to go. If 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 Democrats are against reopening schools, we're out. And, you know, as a former Republican who understands how Republican strategy works, um, Democrats still have not internalized that all elections are national elections. And there will be somewhere a Republican candidate who turns to his opponent and says, do you agree with what just happened in yep. Chicago this fall or this winter? Yes or no? Uh, 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 they'll, they are going to put... Democratic candidates on a griddle about teachers unions and whether or not they support this. And I, by the way, again, as you pointed out, sexism, misogyny, you're aiming this at Lori Lightfoot. Yeah. I mean, it just shows you that this is now kind of, these words are just terms that get burped up and thrown at opponents over anything. The first thing I thought when I, I saw that business about sexism and misogyny, I thought, you know, there's a lot of moms in Chicago who need their kids to go to school. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're talking about sexism and misogyny, sorry, but there aren't a lot of families where somebody can just say, okay, fine, the teachers are on strike. I'll just stay at home with the kids. But I think that this well, was... Also, the, the evidence is uh, is really mounting that the damage to children um, has been much greater than than we ex- than we anticipated or perhaps have, have recognized. So this is... Um, and ironically, I was one of the people, and I, you know, this is when when the pot shots start flying. I I during 2020, I said close the schools, mask up. Um, we don't we don't have any. We are completely defenseless against this pandemic. People are dying in droves. 
you know, institute all of the emergency measures. We know a lot more now. We know that children are not you know, uh, that, that schools are not big vectors for this, that we know how to manage a lot of these problems. We now have, you know, vaccines that provide a lot of protection for the teachers. This, this is, this is a power play and it's an unbelievably stupid hill to die on that will just like the New York, uh, non-citizen voting, you know, they, these will become iconic little grenades to throw that Republican candidates can throw in races all over the country. Oh, I suppose you're like those New Yorkers who want non-citizens to vote. I suppose you're like those Chicago teachers, you know, that think our children should be masked up and stay at home forever on and on and on. And it's, it's, it is astonishing to me that the Democrats, I, I mean, I, I have to say, Lori Lightfoot taking a stand against the teachers union it's surprising. did not have that on my bingo card. Okay. So I, I need your advice about something. And, and maybe it's it's a sign of 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 age. Has has the whole concept of of a sister soldier speech is is that just become too cliche, too dated to use anymore? Yeah. Because well, because I mean, and and I, I recognize that, but and yet it's shorthand for you know resetting by standing up against people in your own base. Bill Clinton did it back in 1992, went on to become president. I, I think Joe Biden needs some sister soldier speeches, but I don't know how to say it without saying sister soldier speeches. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, and I think that the uh, sister soldier speech was effective in a time when a story like that was mediated through editors and a press that didn't move at the speed of light. And I think in a time when this would just become another, just another viral video, and then it would make the rounds of conservative websites carefully edited so that it sounds, you know, worse than it is. And it would be Democrats freaking out and passing it around their, you know, internet tribes. I, I just don't think we are, I think our information streams are too fractured to, to have that really matter in any way. And I, I'm going to, you know, coming back to the advice that I have for both tribes, I think if if we need those kinds of motivations in order to vote to save democracy, then we're already screwed. No, maybe um, we are. Yeah. You know, I, I one of the things that I in my advice to conservatives that I had in this piece um, was that you know the danger is here and now, and and we have to stop because this this is what I thought of when you mentioned sister soldier speeches. I thought of AOC and Omar and, you know, Tlaib and the rest of them. But Republicans, former Republicans, conservatives have to stop saying, well, I can't vote for any of these people because one day there's going to be a president AOC and a secretary of state Ilhan Omar. The Democrats, as I, I said in the piece, to use an old Soviet expression, the Democrats are about as organized as a brothel on fire during an earthquake. They're Democrats. And, and for people to say, well, I just can't support this because one day that will turn into this very leftist kind of, you know, no, the danger is here and now. And Biden doesn't need to get out and punch at his own base in order to reassure people in the center. If people can't see that we are about two steps away from the collapse of American democracy, they don't. Then, then, then no. pulling, no. then, then political stunts. No, political See, I, stunts aren't going to do it. Okay, I, I knew if we, we talked long enough, I'd, I'd find where you were wrong. Um, actually, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think that we that, didn't even bring right, up dogs yet or if, cats. By the way, today is the seventeenth birthday of my old dog Pete, so we are celebrating uh, that. Speaking happy birthday speak, to speaking, Pete! I know, and uh, I'm I'm betting my wife that he's going to make uh, eighteen as well. Look, the reality is is that a lot of voters, you know, hear these abstractions about democracy, but they're concerned about crime, they're concerned about school opening, they're concerned about a lot of these other issues. And at some point, if 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 Joe Biden wants to go back and reset his credentials as a centrist, as a healer, he's going to have to talk about pushback against the progressives on, uh, progressive prosecutors on crime, as have fellow Democrats. He needs to push back against the teachers unions who want to close the schools, as have fellow Democrats. He needs to talk about, you know, using language that is not designed in faculty lounges that's then imposed upon minorities like Latinx. He can do this not as a way of just punching back against his own party, but as a way of saying to people, you know what, we are not so strange. 
we are not so out of touch because if you're counting Mr. Nichols, Professor Nichols, if you're counting on people Whoa. to go, I am motivated to vote because I am concerned about democracy versus inflation, crime, immigration, all of these things, then I think you're going to be disappointed. Wow. When you call me professor, it's got that. It's like, it's like when my mother called me Thomas Michael. <laughs> I was thinking um, that wow. See, in the back uh, of my mind. Yeah. Well, I will agree with you this far that, you know, the abstract, I don't think anybody should be going out there with bumper stickers saying save democracy because that you're right. People are concerned about schools and inflation and jobs and shutdowns and things like that. My point is that if, if Biden picks a fight with somebody on the far left, I actually think, and maybe I'm not confident that Biden could do it well. I think what that will translate to for a lot of these voters is, oh my God, Joe Biden is having to fight the left wing of his own party and he's not really in control. You know, a young Bill Clinton with that kind of nasty temper that used to pop out of him every now and then, walking through a crowd and pulling that off during the primaries, I think was a kind of a one-off that he could get away with. Now, with that said, the kind of thing you're talking about of pushback rather than a sister soldier moment of the president going out and saying, hey, schools have to be open, criminals have to go to jail. That's how it yeah. is. I think right. that that's a different matter entirely. And I would I totally support that. But I think- And only citizens I, should vote. And we ought not to be using words like Latinx. Uh, but, uh, well, yeah. I mean, the, <laughs> I mean, I mean come on. No. But- Here's, here's my other concern, Charlie. I mean, I think we too easily wipe away the democracy issues by saying, yeah, well, you know, January 6th, the violent insurrection. But you know what? People are really worried about inflation. You know, there was a piece about- um, Which, by the J way, is true. It is. But there was a piece about J.D. Vance that made a really important yeah. observation about the people who show up to his- rallies. They don't care about, uh, they don't care about local issues. The reporter was saying, you know, I've been following Vance around. People come to these things. They're not talking about inflation. They are, they are all culture wars all the time. And I think it's important for Democrats. And this is going to be a difficult balancing act. Say, listen, we are the governing party. We can handle problems like inflation. We are not going to shut down your schools, but also this is the alternative. This is your other alternative. People who are, you know, out of their minds and who are going to make it harder to, to vote and to people that are going to, you know, take away your voice. And I think that there is a way to split that difference without, but I, just to be clear, you know, cause now I'm chastened by that professor remark. You take that back. <laughs> um, I, 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 I don't, I agree yeah, that I don't gets. think that the bumper stickers coming out of the DNC next year should be, if you don't vote because of January 6th, we don't want your vote. Um, you, they do have to talk to the kitchen table stuff, but if we lose the other stuff, Republicans, I think Republicans, you're giving a pass to Republicans who can turn the tables on you pretty quickly about this stuff because you and I have both seen that we've seen, we saw it from our side of the bench. We know how adept Republican candidates are about turning that stuff around. I, let me tell you what I'm thinking. I am thinking about the kinds of voters that I would like to persuade and the arguments that I would make. And of course, I would make the case about January 6th, but the immediate pivot would be, yes, but what about the Democrats on crime, on the border, on inflation, on non-citizen voting? If Democrats do not address these issues, they will, they will not be able to make their case. And, and part of it is unfair. And I, I understand this. It, it's that whole, you guys are all woke. And Joe Biden knows it's unfair. And he knows it's inaccurate. And he has to say it. And yes, and I think, I, but I think Democrats have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time on this one. Oh, that, see, that that's where. See, you're asking too much. Apparently, I think. Well, no, I'm I, just, I'm I mean, kidding. I am no, kidding. but I, I mean, the, the, and I think this is a case where if they had a national leadership beyond President Biden, if they had a Democratic National Committee that was actually functional, here are two real ideas that Democrats could implement. One is some kind of national messaging strategy to say, look, we need to, there are places in America that the coalition is energized by the problem of the, you know, imminent authoritarian takeover. Um, in those areas, you know, there's messaging that will work. In other places, we have to be able to talk and we have to not interfere with the talk, with the messaging from people who want to talk about inflation and kitchen table issues and not radicalize those local races. That's one thing. If there were a functional DNC that could do this. The other is to set up some kind of banking mechanism 
that the DNC starts to reallocate money toward local races. And I'm, and I'm still thinking about that as recline piece. Mm-hmm. You know, when Amy McGrath is pulling in $90 million and local Kentucky, you know, Democrats are doing, are basically having to like, you know, print flyers out of their houses. Something is very wrong with how you're allocating money. And again, as much as Democrats may hate Republicans, Republicans were good at this. They would find, they had great farm teams all over the country ready to move into politics. And I think, I, I love the person on Twitter some a couple of years ago who, who looked at the poll numbers in Kentucky and called it the, let's see if we can stop donating to Amy McGrath challenge, you know, and to see if you can reallocate that toward uh, local government, see, this, this that's part, yeah, what's going to yeah. do it. See, this is part of the problem, though, is that z- there is no centralized ability to do any of this in either party because the the, the whole center of gravity has shifted um, from the parties down to the grassroots. And so it, it, it's hard to get people to, you know, chase the Amy McGraths or who was the guy, the Iron Stash, the guy that ran in Paul Ryan's seat. And, yeah. and I'm sitting here in Wisconsin going, this guy is an internet troll. There's no chance that he's going Not to win chance. this seat. And yet, you know, Hollywood falls in love with him and MSNBC falls in love with him. And I'm saying, this guy has so much baggage, you know. But the institutional parties control money, Charlie. They can allocate money. And, you know, as as the great 19th century political strategist Mark Hanna said, the two most important things in politics are money and I can't remember the other one. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, some, sometimes it may be the issues. Tom Nichols, who is no longer actually a professor. Thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. I'm a, I'm a short timer, but I still, I'll still be teaching in the Harvard extension school. So the, the professor title, you can throw that at me anytime you want, but, um, definitely not in that tone of voice. My goodness. (laughs) (laughs) You're not really expecting an apology, are you? Because it's professor. Wow. Have, have we met? (laughs) (laughs) have have we ever spoken before i mean i guess uh yeah i guess i'm just gonna i'm gonna carry that mark of cane on me now forever with my phd well anyway thank you so much for coming back on the podcast tom we always appreciate it thanks charlie and thank you all for listening to today's bulwark podcast i'm charlie sykes we'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again